Today's scripture reading comes from Luke uh, chapter 8, 40 to 48. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. As we've been going through this summer, talking about how we can experience God's power in our lives, we've been focusing quite a bit on where our lives need to be spiritually. The trust and faith we need to have in God, being consecrated, being sanctified, walking by the Spirit. And then we're going to see God do some amazing things. And this is true, and our, and our story this morning is really no different, except that we want to focus a little bit more on the why. Why did Jesus heal this woman that Luke just read about? We've seen a lot of miracles, read a lot of miracles of Jesus when we went through the Gospel of Matthew, and as you've read the other Gospels, all kinds of miracles that are presented there showing the power of Christ. And we get to see His amazing power once again today and next Sunday as well. But today we're going to look a little deeper into the person of Christ. This is kind of an interesting story because we really get a twofer. Two stories in one. It starts out with a man by the name of Jairus um, who has a very sick little girl at home. And then the story gets interrupted by the second story of a woman with this issue of blood. Then it goes back to Jairus and her daughter. This morning, rather than having our main focus on these two characters, we'll be talking about them. Our focus is going to be on Jesus. And we're going to look at the personal way in which Jesus engaged himself with the people. And first of all, as we go through this, we notice his accessibility. His accessibility in verse 40. It says, Now when Jesus returned... A crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Now, Jesus had just been in the region of Gadara. They had sailed across the northern part of the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum to the Gentile side of the, the shore. And Jesus went there kind of to get a little bit of relief from these crowds that were always around him, the nonstop crush of the mob. He needed not just some time alone, but uh, often took time just with his disciples to give them an explanation about some of the teachings that he was giving, and then also time to just to be with his father. 
And so they all went across the Sea of Galilee to get away. And when you'll remember, we talked about this back in our study of Matthew. When they got to the other side, Jesus was immediately, uh, he ran into these two wild, evil spirit-filled men who came running down the hill to attack him and those who were with him. And you remember the story focused in on one of them who was filled with at least 2,000 demons. And Jesus delivered him, saved him, and turned him back basically into a missionary. He wanted to follow Jesus. No, you stay here. You need to tell people about what I did for you. But the people in that region were so frightened by the power of Jesus to deliver this man that they weren't able to deal with him at all. And when Jesus delivered this man, he sent, you remember, he sent all those demonic spirits into this big herd of pigs, and they ran over the cliff and and drowned in 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 the sea. But the man, by far the more important character, he was delivered, he was clothed, and in his right mind after the touch of Jesus. But the crowd, you'll remember, reacted against him and told him to leave the area. They weren't interested in Jesus. They weren't interested in his power. They weren't interested in the forgiveness of sins. They just wanted Jesus to leave. And Scripture tells us that he left, and that was his only visit. It was his only visit to that region. And so Jesus returned to Capernaum. Not necessarily after a good rest, but he returned to Capernaum. And Mark chapter 5 tells us that that whole crowd was there waiting for him when he landed. Thousands of them. All the people who hurt. All the people who suffered. The people that were in pain. The people who were uh, in sorrow. All the people who were handicapped, disabled. The people that that couldn't hear and couldn't see. They were all waiting and waiting and waiting with um, perhaps some of their anxieties starting to rise with all their cares, waiting for Jesus to get back. And some of them had urgent needs, such as this man Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. He had a 12-year-old daughter who was dying at home. And you can imagine that as he waited and waited and waited for Jesus to get back, um, he was perhaps even wondering, would he come back? When was he going to back? And his anxiety was probably rising to a panic point because he knew what was happening with his daughter. And all these people waiting for him to come back, and he did. He didn't try to avoid them. He stepped off the boat, and there they all were. And that's the way it pretty much was always with Jesus. And that tells us of his accessibility. He didn't seclude himself away from the people. He could have. His entire ministry was spent in public with the people in the streets, the people in the fields, in their homes, in the synagogues, on the road, on the sea, uh, in the boats, wherever it was. There were times that he had to get away for rest and restore his energy. He, he had taken on the, 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 the human aspect of us as well. Sometimes it was to teach his, his disciples. Sometimes, as we said, it was just to be away with his father and spend time with his father to recoup spiritually. But always when the morning came back, he came back and there were the crowds waiting. And that was okay because it was to them that he had come. And even though the crowd hounded him and clamored after him, and even though the crowd crushed him and at times endangered him, and even though sometimes the crowd tried to kill him, he was accessible to them, always. 
So when he came back, they were all there because he came to seek and to save the lost. But it wasn't just to heal them physically. He had to tell them, they had to understand that they were poor spiritually. They were prisoners spiritually. They were blind spiritually. They were oppressed spiritually. And they needed the forgiveness of God and the love of God. And most of the people, of course, were looking for signs and wonders. We've talked about that before. And what Jesus could do for them physically. They weren't necessarily looking for a spiritual touch. But that didn't deter Jesus because he knew that some hearts were going to be touched spiritually as well. And so he made himself accessible to them. And verse 41 says, and behold, love that word. We don't often get in the NIV. It's always there in the King James. It's there in the Greek. And behold, it's a term that indicates something out of the ordinary just happened. Something surprising happened. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, both Matthew and Mark also record this incident. So all three Gospels, uh, the Holy Spirit made sure there was in all, at least all, all, all those three. There's a lot of detail given because this was important. And I think what makes it remarkable is that this man, Jairus, is an official of the synagogue. He's described as a ruler of the synagogue. That's, that's as high as you could go in the social, excuse me, in the local community social strata. And you know what's fascinating about this whole account is that there's two people involved with legitimate faith. You've got this man, Jairus. He's a ruler of the synagogue. And you've got this woman who is an outcast. And the contrasts are pretty clear between the two. One is a man, one is a woman. One is rich, one is poor. One is revered and exalted. The other is vilified and despised. One is respected, one is rejected, one is used to, be, uh, used to being honored, one is used to being scorned. One has a 12-year-old daughter dying, the other has a 12-year-old disease she's been suffering with. One leads the synagogue, the other is excommunicated from the synagogue. And here we see our Savior embracing both extremes. That's our God. He embraces both extremes. He loves them all. Now, it was pretty shocking for an official of the synagogue to do this. He's a man who is used to great respect. He would be spiritually mature and devoted to God, at least the religion of Judaism. He'd, he would have been devoted to the people, a leader of the people, trusting in, uh, trusted in terms of wisdom and knowledge and, and explanations of the Old Testament. The responsibility of this man was quite, uh, quite known as well, to take care of all the administration of the synagogue, which was the local center of Judaism. They were responsible for all the public services daily and on the Sabbath. They supervised all the activities, appointed all the teachers, all the readers of the Scripture, all those who prayed and explained the Scriptures. They had all administrative responsibility. He was certainly part of the Capernaum religious establishment. And interestingly enough, the local religious establishment there in Capernaum would have pretty much been connected to the national religious establishment, which were dominated by the Pharisees and the scribes, who, as you remember, hated Jesus. They were doing everything they could to destroy his ministry and to attack him. They represented 
They, excuse me, they resented him. They despised his message. They were already plotting to kill him. Yet despite being part of all that, here comes this man Jairus coming to Jesus. And that's why verse 41 starts out by saying, And behold, this is surprising, almost shocking. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. That's why it was so surprising. But putting all the religious battles aside that maybe he had been a part of previously, he has now been reduced to a grief-stricken father. He came, it tells us, and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house. He really doesn't care about all that other stuff at this moment. All he cares about is that he gets to Jesus and gets Jesus to his daughter. I believe he had already seen Jesus' power at work right there in the synagogue in Capernaum. In, in chapter 4 of Luke, Jesus was sitting in the synagogue teaching and reading, and it says, in the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Isn't that amazing that a demonic spirit, evil spirit, can speak the truth? <laughs> the demon actually gave an accurate testimony of who Jesus was. And Jairus probably heard that since he was a ruler of the synagogue and probably there is mandatory. Jesus then went to Peter's home and he healed his mother-in-law and did a number of other miracles. So between seeing what Jesus did, personally hearing, he no doubt heard about other things that Jesus had done as well. Maybe he was actually beginning to believe that Jesus' message was a true message. And he falls at the feet of Jesus and he begins to beg him. And in Mark chapter 5, verse 23, it gives exactly what he said. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. This man had enough faith to believe that Jesus could heal her. He was a rare man in the upper echelons of the religious society. It was very unusual to find a ruler of the synagogue believing in Jesus, believing in his power, humbling himself in front of the whole crowd this way. That's the way every person needs to come to Jesus, isn't it? Pride was set aside, position was set aside, reputation was set aside, what people thought was set aside. Remember what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2? At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. This man bowed his knees because he came to the realization that Jesus was his only hope. How grateful he must have been for the accessibility of Jesus, despite his background. Jesus was available to everybody. And that's actually our second point. He was not only accessible, he was available Accessible alone doesn't really go far enough. Accessible is, is a little bit superficial in that it just means that you're there, which is important. You've got to be there. But available takes it another step. He wasn't just accessible to the crowd. He was available to a person. We see that in a very short phrase in the second part of verse 42 where it simply says, as Jesus was on his way. Where? To Jairus' house. Jairus had already asked him, and so he was on his way. 
He became available to Jairus personally. He responded to him personally. He could have said, Jairus, look at the crowd here. There's lots of people that are hurting. I'll, I'll, I'll get there when I get there. But Jesus wasn't there for the crowds. He was there for individuals. He was committed to people. Folks, this is the way it is with the heart of our God. He's not just concerned about humanity as a whole. You know, the world. Because it's people who make up the world. He really cares about people. And over and over again we read that great multitudes came to Jesus, but within that multitude, Jesus touched individuals. It was individuals who came who were lame and crippled and blind and dumb. They were laid at his feet and he healed them. So the multitude eventually marveled when they saw the dumb speaking and the crippled walking and the lame uh, walking, uh, the blind seeing, and, and, the, and they glorified God, the God of Israel, Scripture says. And that was every day. He was available to the individuals who had needs that's really, I don't know about you, but that's an encouragement to me that our God, the God of the universe, cares about us deeply. That through Jesus Christ, He made Himself accessible to all of us, but not only accessible, but He's available to you and to me personally. Just think about that moment. The Creator of the universe walked with people and he cared about individuals. And the Gospels are filled not with stories of Jesus in the crowd, but stories of Jesus with a man here and a woman there and a, and a child over there. Jesus said, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Folks, can we do any less? Building relationships individually, being out where people are, that's what Jesus was all about. That's what we need to be all about. And Jairus came and Jesus responded to his hopeful faith. He responded to the man's natural pain and he was accessible and became available. Why is that? It comes from a place of compassion. We sang that song, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. It's his compassion. God is compassionate. God weeps. God feels the pain of suffering people. And that's one of the great messages of the incarnation of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 5 verse 2, it says he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. He understands because he feels that. Jesus comes into the world, God in human flesh, and he suffers because he cares. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, we read, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, what? Gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He was a comforter. He was a burden bearer. And the prophet Isaiah said about him in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. That's you and I. Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 3. This is a cool verse. A bruised reed, he, the Messiah, Jesus, will not break. And a smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. 
When the candle gets down and the wick is almost out, it's just barely, barely flickering, he doesn't put it out. It may be weak. There may be very little left, but he doesn't put out that smoldering wick, but he fans it into flame. And when he finds a reed that might, be, might have played a tune at one time in a little reed flute, and now it's all filled with moisture and saliva and it's bending and you can't get any tune out of it anymore. He doesn't break it and throw it away. He restores it so it can play music again. But Isaiah is not talking about candles and reeds and flutes. He's talking about people. He's talking about people. He's talking about our Messiah, our Lord, our Jesus. As he, as he goes to the broken, he goes to the flickering life and he flames, it fans it into flame and he puts the song back again. That's compassion. Why did he do healings? Why did he do resurrections? Because he wanted to demonstrate not only his divine power, that was a significant part of it, but behind that power is this amazing compassion of his. Matthew 14, 14, it says, When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Sometimes my, my reaction is, but Jesus had compassion just came through that love and he healed their sick and in Mark chapter 1 Jesus was filled with compassion he reached out his hand and touched the man I am willing he said be clean in Mark chapter 8 we read I have compassion for these people they've already been here for three days and have nothing to eat Matthew recounts in chapter 9 when uh, when he saw the crowds he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, we read in Luke chapter 19, he wept over it. He said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your your eyes. Compassion. His compassion. That's what's behind his accessibility. That's what's behind his availability. And that's also what's behind his interruptibility. When that typed it in, Word docs said, misspell, error. And I said, override. His interruptibility. As Jesus was on his way, verse 42, the crowds almost crushed him. He was trying to get to the man's house. And everybody else in the crowd was trying to get to him. And Jairus may have been out in front trying to make a way, trying to do a blocking thing for him in his desperation, trying to push through the crowd to try to get him to his daughter. Then from Jairus' point of view, something very frustrating and aggravating happened. Verse 43, a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. Now we'll stop there for a minute because Jesus stopped. Stopped in his tracks. This woman was just one of the faces in the crowd. Many, one of many who needed a touch from Jesus. And and she becomes an interruption. And it didn't have to be that way. I mean, Jesus didn't have to call attention to the woman. She reached out, grabbed his cloak, and at the end of verse 40, 44, immediately her hemorrhage stopping. Okay, all done. Come on, Jesus, let's move on. You know, my, my, my daughter. And I understand that frustration. 
I get it. When my alarm goes off in the morning, before I get up, my mind starts going through the day and orders my day. Here's all the things that need to be done. Here's when they have to be done. And I get up and I start. When my schedule gets interrupted, it's really irritating. All our married life, my wife has been trying to help me with that. And it's really irritating. <laughs> and her response, her response usually is, is somebody going to die unless you get it done right now? I've never had a response to that until now. Maybe Jairus' daughter did. Just saying. I hate that term too. Just, i got to think about that. But Jesus was very used to being interrupted. He really was. I mean, he'd be preaching a sermon in a home and all of a sudden a, 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 the hole in the roof would open up in the middle of his sermon and a guy would be let down and, and he'd stop. He'd touch and he would heal. Everybody who wanted something interrupted him. I mean, he'd, he'd be preaching and he'd have interruptions. Everybody wanted something. Interruptibility was a virtue for Jesus. It's rather amazing, no matter what he was doing, he'd literally stop and turn to help. Jesus was interruptible because there was so much more that he could do than just the basics. Here's a panicky ruler on his hands. He's trying to get through the crowd to get this man, uh, get him to this man's house there in Capernaum. And all of a sudden, this woman who, is, who has some kind of a bleeding, and she's not even supposed to be there, for goodness sake. It's been going on for 12 years. She, she touches his garment. 12 years. That's as long as Jairus' daughter was alive. And Jairus and his family had had 12 years of anticipated joy with their daughter. And this woman had had 12 years of suffering, which literally turned her into an outcast. The physical effects of that had to be loss of blood all the time, great deal of pain, loss of strength, danger of death. But worse, maybe in some ways, was the severe social effects. In Leviticus chapter 15, it says, If any woman has an issue of blood like this, she is ceremonially unclean. And because of this, she couldn't go to the temple. She couldn't go to the synagogue. She couldn't be with her husband. She couldn't touch her family, couldn't touch her children. Because she was considered ceremonially unclean, she would transmit that ritual uncleanness to anybody that she touched. Socially, she was an outcast, even of her own family. And even worse, there were spiritual effects. She was barred from the synagogue, couldn't be taught by God's Word or even listen to scrolls being read. We're told she couldn't be healed. Luke, the physician, he was the one that tells us that, and he should know he's a, he's a physician. She couldn't be healed. Mark tells us that she had spent all she had trying all the various remedies that were suggested. And he says she endured much at the hands of many physicians. At her wit's end, she heard about the healing power of Jesus and that Jesus was there, and she's at the other end of the social spectrum from the ruler of the synagogue. She knows what the required boundaries for her are, what her restrictions are. She's not supposed to be among people like that in a group. 
But she's reached the point where she doesn't care anymore, just like the ruler of the synagogue didn't care anymore. And both the ruler and this outcast lady had come to the point of desperation. So she came up behind him, it says in verse 44, hoping to avoid being noticed. And she had until she touched his cloak. It says she came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. Now you know the word touch doesn't even come close to explaining what she did. The Greek root word is hapto, which means to touch. But this is the reflexive verb tense, which is haptomai. And haptomai is much stronger, and it means to fasten oneself to, to hear to, to cling to. This should have been translated, she came up behind him and grabbed and clung to the edge of his cloak. I mean, this has been 12 years and had a total breach of all social etiquette. But she finally gets to Jesus, and this is her last final hope, and she hangs on to his robe. Matthew 9, 21, she said to herself, if only I touch, actually grab a hold of, same Greek word, if only I grab a hold of his cloak, I'll be healed. It's rather amazing if you think about it. She clung to the fringe of his robe, grasping it with force, a desperate clutching in faith that there was so much power available that if she just got that close and hung on, the power would flow from him to her. She was absolutely right. And it says in verse 44, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Just like that. Folks, that was faith in the power of Jesus. And the belief that he had such immense power that it would just flow from him. This was Isaiah chapter 42 was talking about when he wrote a bruised reed, he will not break, and a smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. This woman was that bruised reed. She was that smoldering wick about to be snuffed out. And Jesus fanned that flame and restored the song when he stopped the bleeding. Now, he could have stopped there. Work was done, right? She got what she wanted. But Jesus honored her faith. You know, he healed people without faith all the time, if you read through scriptures. But he never saved anybody without faith. And this woman was on the verge or on the way to salvation. Her physical problem was solved, but there was so much more yet to be done in her. And that brings us to our last point this morning, and that is his inexhaustibility. His inexhaustibility. He needed to complete his work in her, and he wouldn't stop until it was done. And that's what he does in our lives as well. Who touched me? Jesus asked. He knew. He knew who had touched him, why she had touched him. He knew that she had been healed. He could have moved on and let the lady go physically well. But there were other things that needed to be taken care of in her life. One was that she needed to be restored socially. And that called for a public restoration and the testimony that she had been healed. And secondly, she needed to be restored spiritually to God. And he was the only, and Jesus was the only one who could confirm that. And Jesus wanted to make sure that she was wholly restored. So he asked, who touched me? 
Who grabbed a hold and hung on to my robe? And everybody around him were saying, wasn't me, wasn't me, not I. And even the disciples were critical of him, and they, they asked him this question in Mark 5. You see the people crowding against you, the disciples asking you, you, you can ask, who touched me? Seriously? What kind of question is that? It's so crowded here, everybody's touching you. But Jesus says, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. That was a different touch. It was a different touch. Something happened. And when he asked who touched me, it wasn't because he didn't know. He was calling for her to step out and reveal herself because he wasn't done with her yet. And a statement there in verse 46 is one of the most profound things I believe that Jesus ever said. I know that power has gone out of me. What an insight into Jesus. What an insight into God. Folks, the power of God is not impersonal. What a truth. Have you ever thought about that statement or that concept? The power of God is personal to the nature of God. Folks, the power of God is not impersonal. When the power of God flows from, you, from Him to you, He feels the flow. That's an incredible thought. His life pours into us. and We, we, we can feel the power, the, the, the infusion of spiritual power into our lives when we see, uh, see how it evidenced in our lives. But have you ever thought about the fact that God feels it too when He does that? Jesus' experience actually personally felt the outflow of His power, His creative power to recreate this woman from inside out. God is not impersonal. God is not detached. When God touches a life and power flows, He feels the flow. No one receives the power of God into his or her life without personal involvement, involvement from God. We are saved and the power flows. We are sanctified and the power flows. We're going to be glorified and the power is going to flow. And it's a living, intimate, personal union of life with a living, eternal God, and He feels the flow. It's the personal power of God flowing into us. He's always personally involved, inexhaustibly, and He completes what He starts. This woman couldn't hide. She saw that she hadn't escaped notice. Verse 47 says, Then the woman seeing that she could not go unnoticed, she was trying to do this in secret, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, that's a very, very important statement in that verse. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. That declaration on her part in front of everybody restored her socially. Everybody heard that she was healed from her bleeding and she was no longer a social outcast just like that. Jesus needed to have that taken care of for her. And to complete his work in her, we read in verse 48, then he said to her, daughter. Isn't that interesting? That is the only time in the whole New Testament that he ever calls a woman daughter. 
daughter. That's a personal, intimate family name. He's accepted her into the kingdom. Daughter. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And we see the word healed and we think one-dimensional, right? Healing, physical healing. But the word he used is sozo. How many remember us talking about that back in Matthew? Sozo. In the Greek, it's exactly what he said to the one leper who came back to him and to thank him. Remember, there were ten lepers. He healed ten. They all went off. One came back. And he said to that one, your faith has saved you. Your faith has sozoed you. Same word. It's an all-encompassing word. If you were to look up that word in the Greek dictionary, it says it means, number one, to save or rescue from danger or destruction. Number two, to restore to health. That's all part of it. Thirdly, to deliver from the penalties of the Messianic judgment. That's sozo. I like the King James translation of this, of this word. Daughter, your faith has made you whole. That's cool. Sozo. She needed to be restored physically. She needed to be restored socially. She needed to be restored spiritually. And Jesus did it all. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has sozoed you. Made you whole. Then he says, go in peace. It wasn't just a psychological peace. Okay, calm yourself. You're, you're fine now. This is a spiritual peace. This is peace with God. Go in peace because now you're part of the kingdom. You have been saved. Folks, Jesus knows you. Jesus knows you. He knows your hurts. He knows your pain. He knows your needs. He is accessible to you. He's available to you. He is interruptible by you. And He is inexhaustible in meeting your need. And it's personal with Him because He is compassionate. He feels the flow of power into your life, into my life. Folks, this is our God manifested in Jesus Christ. And we can go with that encouragement knowing that He is always there for us. Father, this morning we thank You so much that You love us. We, we, we say that. It's easy to say. It's easy to pray. Thank You, Father, that You love us. Thank You for Your love. But when we delve into what that love means, what that compassion means, and all that entails, it's, it, it's, it's overwhelming. We can't grasp all of that. But we praise You. We thank You. Thank you that you know us individually. Thank you that you know us intimately. You understand what we're struggling with. You understand perhaps spiritual struggles that we're have, having or just accepting a physical issue that we're going through right now or, or maybe there's an emotional issue that, that we just, God, where are you? You feel all of that. And we just pray, Father, that you would reach down and touch each one of us where we are. Not being afraid, oh, this is too little to bother God. Nothing's too little to bother God. We can't bother God. 
You are there for us because you love us. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.